Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Today, a tale of two communities in Canada. They're separated by a great distance. One is in Manitoba, the other New Brunswick. But they find common ground in history. Twin stories of injustice, disaster, and more recently, the perils of climate change. The people in these places are prey to rising waters that engulfs the land they live upon. Both know there are solutions to their precarious plight. But in both cases, they are stymied, stuck with laws and rules that weren't designed with a warming climate in mind. And ultimately, there's this. Both communities, both Indigenous, were forced off their own land by settlers and made to live on the ground that now, to them, feels so unsafe. Also today, three Ontarians focused on the climate emergency join me in a conversation about what's at stake in the upcoming election there. Plus, an update from an isolated BC community that's making an astonishingly fast switch from diesel to heat pumps. How they're doing it and how it's making a difference. Welcome to What on Earth? I'm Laura Lynch. Spring is traditionally welcomed as a time of renewal, when frozen lands thaw and swell with new growth, new possibilities, new hope. More and more, though, spring means something much different to people living near rivers that are swollen with snowmelt and rain. Spring there brings sadness and shock, along with the coursing water. It's a disaster. It's a disaster. The river started flowing over the highway which flowed into our yards, my neighbor's yard, my yard. The river water was stronger than the sandbags, stronger than anything, and so our houses are full of water. Karen Corchain Parisian's sump pump stopped working the day the Fisher River poured into her home. She lives on Pegwa's First Nation land in Manitoba. The sandbags there failed. When the evacuation order came, Corchain Parisian hardly had time to pack a bag. And when her dog Diesel wouldn't get in the car, she had to leave him behind, even as the water rose. It's devastating. It's, it's a loss, right? Oh, it's just, it's just a very difficult time, stressful time. And I'm not the only one in Pegasus. And I do know that, you know, I'm not the only one whose house has gone under. There. there are going to be many, many, many houses that have been breached like that so I don't know like am I going to be homeless you know that's uh, an unknown right now. Gorshane Parisian isn't alone in her worry more than a thousand of her neighbors had to leave home along with her and it's far from the first time the people of the Peguis First Nation have faced devastating floodwaters. Five times in the past 16 years the river has spilled its banks washing out roads destroying property and forcing people from their homes. 
This news report from 2014 is an echo of all that's happening now. There are 115 people out of their homes, about 50, like the one that I'm standing in front of, uh, that are threatened still by floodwaters, still at, at danger. But I was speaking with a few people, took a boat tour of the community, and uh, there's certainly this feeling that, that why is this continually happening and uh, wh- how can they have more of these dams permanently protecting the community? Some of those who left during previous floods still haven't been able to return. Nagan Sinclair is a professor of Indigenous Studies at the University of Manitoba. He's also part of the Peguis First Nation. Uh, Peguis First Nation has always been neglected and forgotten about and treated terribly by this province, going all the way back to 1907 when we were forced off the land by gunpoint through an illegal and unjust removal. Sinclair lives on their original land, an area known as the St. Peter's Reserve. More than a century ago, it was prime farmland north of Winnipeg, far from the flood-prone delta where the people of the Peguis Nation exist now. The people who lived at St. Peter's were successful farmers, but settlers wanted the area for themselves. Officials from the nearby town of Selkirk decided to have the indigenous population vote on whether to stay, but there wasn't anything legitimate about the process. Some were offered money to vote to leave. Others weren't even able to vote. The result? They were forced to move into the flood zone where they still live today. The fact is that that vote was a sham, and it was admitted so by the federal government, which paid Pegasus First Nation $121 million in compensation. But it is particularly uh, awful for myself in that uh, I witness my relatives every year having massive amount of property damage, their livelihoods being consistently under duress, and the fact that it's just impossible to make a way of life uh, for over 125 years or 120 years or so um, in this territory that we've been forced to live upon. Here's the thing, though. The Peguis First Nation isn't the only Indigenous community facing elevated risks due to climate change on land that they were forced onto generations ago. In northern New Brunswick, the seaside Ukbeganjik First Nation is watching the ocean creep ever closer. Hi, my name is Sasha Labilwa. I'm from Eel River Bar, and I'm the chief here of the community. Chief Labilwa tells another tale of a nation pushed from its territory onto land washing away due to storm surges, flooding, and erosion. In 1807, the colonial government in New Brunswick chose the land for a reserve and all but forced Indigenous people to move onto it. Labilwa calls it a bitter blow to her people. If you look back at the government documents that came from Indigenous services, I think it was stated that if a dollar was paid for those lands, it was a dollar too much. There could be no farming, there could be no development. The lands were marshy and swampy. It was suitable for Indians, is, is what you know was in that document. And now climate change is linked to rising sea levels there. After a storm in 2010 that destroyed some homes, the federal government built a seawall. But for the chief, the wall was just a stopgap measure. We sew up the wound that's bleeding right now, but we didn't address the internal bleeding. (laughs) So Labilwa says they're trying to stop the bleeding by buying new land on higher ground. And in a twist, it's land that's part of their traditional territory, land they were forced to leave we're purchasing back lands that originally belonged to us. It's ironic. It's it's a strange concept, 
but it's also a realistic concept that we need to face because we're taking the initiative to protect our people and our generations to come. Both of these stories speak to historic injustice, coupled with the complications of climate change. But even Indigenous communities that haven't been coerced into moving face steep challenges more than others affected by flooding. Lytton Chagraborty researches flood resiliency at the University of Waterloo. He studied the flooding risks to 985 Indigenous reserves and compared them to other Canadian communities. Even though flood exposure between Indigenous communities and non-Indigenous communities are equal across Canada, social vulnerability of Indigenous populations are higher than non-Indigenous communities. That put them at the high-risk categories. He's talking about things like low incomes, high housing costs, lack of access to vehicles. Chakraborty says all of those things make communities more vulnerable to the impact of natural hazards like flooding. People don't have the financial or social resources to respond and recover. Chakraborty says they're also vulnerable because they've never really been told about the threat they face. And he says that has to change. Some of the communities, those who are living in the flood zones, or maybe they were pushed to live in those some specific areas, they don't have proper information about the risk. So they are not well prepared to mitigate the risk. Chakraborty says if the government only looks at the physical hazard itself, it's not seeing the full picture. To do the right thing, he says, to truly decolonize risk assessment, officials have to broaden the definition of what risk is for those living on the land. Then, there's the wider question. Once you do understand the risks, how do you fix the problem? I am Deborah McGregor, and I am Anishinaabe from White First River First Nation. I'm also an associate professor at York University at Osgoode Hall Law School in the Faculty of Environmental and Urban Change and Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Environmental Justice. Deborah McGregor says while Indigenous people in Canada are more vulnerable to flooding, they're also much less responsible for the causes of climate change. That's what makes it a justice issue. Uh, an Indigenous climate justice issue is you are not the one creating the problem, but you are the one who disproportionately bears the impacts of it. That's definitely an issue for Indigenous peoples in Canada, but also elsewhere in the world. And she says the legal and constitutional framework built up around relations with Indigenous people pretty much guarantees a slow, painful crawl to solutions that would make them safer. So when I think about my ancestors for thousands of years, we would have been able to respond in the way that made sense to us because we would have had our own authority, we would have had our own decision making. So in a case of flood or anticipation of fire, you would move from the source of danger. Now it's very challenging to do that. That's because, in effect, those living on reserves are hemmed in. Their land is under federal control. But the land they need to get to for safety is under the jurisdiction of other levels of government, provincial, territorial, municipal. So you just can't, you just can't move like you, like you could have, because then all of a sudden you're leaving federal jurisdiction, and then you're engaging with a whole other level of government that isn't historically ever been super keen on taking on the responsibility of First Nations people or Indigenous peoples. And that means time-consuming challenges for communities trying to prevent or respond to disaster. Who's got jurisdiction? Who's got funding? And this is going to change. 
across the country. It's not going to be consistent for First Nations when they start to engage with provinces because each province is different. So federally, you'll see um, support if there's uh, emergency um, declared, but that's not enough, nor is it local enough to be able to deal with the specific situations. So it does, it does constrain because you community can't make a decision because they're sitting there waiting for somebody else to make decisions about how their community is going to be supported through a crisis or an emergency of some kind, um, as opposed to they having the resources to be able to deal with it right away on their own terms. Here's a real life example. That thicket of regulations, layers of bureaucracy, and so many rules has become a jurisdictional nightmare for the Ubagandjik First Nation in northern New Brunswick. That land that it bought on higher ground, the land it once owned, Chief Sasha Labilwa is trying to convert it to reserve land in order to use it. I'd say there's probably about 50 to 60 steps that need to be taken before an addition to reserve is granted. 50 to 60 steps, and she says everyone has to be on board. It involves negotiating with the federal government, the province, utility companies, and of course the local authorities that may not want to give up the property tax payments. That's a a revenue maybe that that municipality is going to lose because once it's granted reserve status, we're not taxable. The Pegwas First Nation in Manitoba has been asking for help for some kind of infrastructure to prevent flooding for years. Member Nagan Sinclair says it is past time for change. Like someone's got to pay the bill for what Pegasus is experiencing when Canada has created this situation. Canadians should be paying for that. But not only are Canadians paying for that, but Pegasus is paying for it as well. Are we going to create a better solution and a better country than we've all inherited? Are we going to find solutions for Indigenous peoples? And particularly for Canadians to be able to proactively work with Indigenous peoples, not in emergency situations, but in situations in which all peoples of these territories are thriving. York University's Deborah McGregor says that while Indigenous communities are vulnerable, there's also another side to the story. I know that the narrative around Indigenous peoples being more vulnerable and at risk, all of that's true. But there's also something else that's true, and that's that First Nations and Indigenous peoples have been able to also adapt to massive environmental changes brought on by colonialism to the land and to people's lives. So there's also this incredible ability to be able to adapt and survive dramatic, dramatic changes. So there's also something to learn from Indigenous peoples and their way of life and knowledge and legal traditions and governance that can help others. And so I think what what needs to happen is actually listening to Indigenous peoples. In fact, Canada's Minister for Environment and Climate Change has just announced he's opening consultations on a new strategy for adapting to climate-related flooding, fires, and other natural disasters. And I had a chance to ask Stephen Gilbo about the particular challenges facing the Peguis and the Yukbeganjik First Nations. So this is certainly something we want to address with Indigenous communities across the country to see what are the solutions that can be that that, that can be put in place to, to, to ensure that, that this doesn't continue to happen and that, that they we do not continue to, to, to victimize them as we've had over the over the past decades, um, namely with, with, with these impacts of climate change. I guess, though, that, that for both of them, they've experienced this for quite a long time. And in the case of the Peguis, they've been asking for climate adaptation strategies for quite a long time, years. And in northern New Brunswick, they've been forced to buy back land that they used to live on to try to move from where they are. 
what is the government planning to do in the short term? I know strategies are made for long term, but, but these cases seem particularly unjust. And I'm wondering what government can do short term to try to uh, meet the challenges and also do it in the name of reconciliation. Well, as, as you rightly pointed out, part of the, the objective of, of the, the strategy is to ensure that we find solutions with these communities. So it's not about what the federal government thinks should, should happen, but it's about figuring out what, what, what those strategies, what those solutions are with these indigenous communities. And, and, it and is, yes, of course, the federal government's responsibility to listen. But Deborah McGregor says the government already knows what communities want. Indigenous people have already been saying, actually, for quite some time, what they need. Often Indigenous peoples participate in these processes in a very kind of marginalized kind of way. You're participating as a stakeholder or an interest group, not as a treaty holder or as self-governing entities. So that hasn't really been sorted out. I think the federal government hasn't figured out what nation to nation means. I mean, it's there. You see it in the rhetoric, but they haven't really figured out what that means in terms of climate change. And make no mistake about it, there's growing impatience. Rebecca Sinclair works with Indigenous Climate Action. It's got answers, ones that point to using Indigenous knowledge as a solution to the climate crisis. Indigenous people have been talking to the government about what they need. They've written reports, they have done calls to action, they have laid it all out, and it's still being ignored and not implemented to this day. Through my work with ICA, We've done an environmental scan of what has been said to date from Indigenous folks, and there is so much out there. At a, at a point where it becomes exhaustive, saying the exact same thing over and over again. So it's it's actually not fair to say the government needs to listen to Indigenous people. No, they need to enact all of the calls to action. So what does a solution look like? It's respecting Indigenous sovereignty. It's putting Indigenous folks with the knowledge and know-how of their territories in the driver's seat of those solutions. Free prior and informed consent with the ability to say no, to offer alternatives that will be adopted by the state. Back in New Brunswick, Chief Sasha Labillois sits on a log beside the sea on her reserve in New Brunswick, Looking out at the wall the federal government built to hold back the waters years ago, she knows it won't work in the long run. While Ottawa speaks of yet more consultations, Labilwa wants, needs, a lasting solution. The levels will continue to rise and like you can't just keep building a wall because then we'll be inside of a bowl. We hear a lot about reconciliation and um, looking forward and, and how do we improve the overall well-being of Indigenous communities. While we're poor in lands because our lands were stolen, we were forced into um, reservations, I think that's what we need to look at. What on Earth with Laura Lynch with CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM.
story of climate change isn't one story. It isn't even a million stories. It's an unlimited number of tales waiting to be told by people like you. And the CBC wants to hear from you, wants you to share your story with us. Tamara Baluja is the producer of CBC First Person. Hi, Tamara. Hey, Laura. It's so great to be here. And I'm really glad you're here because you're going to tell us what first person actually is. <laughs> it's pretty much just as it sounds. Um, it's real lived experience as told, or in this case, as written by the person living it. Like, even though we're in the business of telling stories as journalists, we can't do it as well as the person who is going through it can because you're actually living through it. So CBC First Person is a platform for people, the listeners, to share their experiences in their own words, and then we publish those columns on cbc.ca. But that's where you come in, right? Yes. Um, so I sift through all the pitches that we get, and then we work with the writers who are often not professional writers. This might be the first thing that they're ever writing um, that would be published publicly. And we help them piece together a column, and I help with all of the editing and fact-checking as well. Oh, what an opportunity. And you, Have you done this for climate change-focused pieces? Yes, actually, some of our most successful pieces ever have been about how climate change has affected the writer personally. Um, I'm going to tell you about one that resonated with me personally. Uh, there is this stunning, absolutely stunning backcountry hike in BC called Berg Lake in Mount Robson Provincial Park. And it takes you past these massive glaciers, epic waterfalls, beautiful lakes, I did it in 2020, and um, the author who I'm thinking of did this particular hike. When she saw these amazing glaciers, she felt incredibly sad because she realized if she had kids, they would most likely never be able to see these glaciers. But more so than that, it also made her realize that maybe she doesn't even want to have kids because climate change is literally changing the vistas that she was looking upon. Now, that incredibly beautiful hike has been possibly irreparably changed forever because just a few weeks after the author did it, BC experienced devastating floods in 2021 during the province's record-breaking heat. And that hike, you know, reservations for it sell out every year, um, but that hike has been shut down ever since. So it really did change how this author felt about climate change. Yeah, it makes me really sad as well. I love to hike and it sounds like it was gorgeous. So mm -hmm. how can listeners then share their stories? So I know you hear from listeners who have shared their personal stories about how climate change is affecting them directly or how they're trying to do something about climate change at an individual level and the challenges of doing that. So I want to hear from the person who for example, loves steak and eats meat with every meal of the day, but decided to go vegetarian because of climate change. And I want to know what it was like to change your diet. Or maybe you joined a volunteer firefighting team because wildfires threatened your home and you said, never again. Um, you know, we're not looking for opinion columns that say electric vehicles are the best solution or here's why, for example, or or pieces from people who study policy. But I do want to know if you took a road trip across Canada in an electric vehicle and maybe what you learned about yourself or how you thought about climate change as you went from province to province. The thing is, like, as you know, Laura, climate change can be such a big and overwhelming thing to grapple with. And it's really important that we hear from experts on that. 
But with CBC First Person, we're really looking for those personal stories. And I think it's in those everyday moments that we can see how climate change is affecting all of us by reading one person's story. Yeah, and those stories can be so powerful. So what is the best way for people to share their stories with you? We have an FAQ on how to best pitch us. Just if you search CBC First Person FAQ, it will pop right up on Google. And you can email me at firstperson at cbc.ca and I can help you strengthen your pitch even and make sure that it gets to a place where we can publish it on CBC. Okay, let's just repeat that email address once again. Firstperson, all one word, firstperson at cbc.ca. Thank you so much, Tamara. I hope you get loads of people writing into you. Fingers crossed. Thank you so much, Laura. This has been great. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. So my name is Gatwas and I'm Hilfsdach. I live in the Hilfsdach community of Waglisla, what's commonly referred to as Bella Bella, on the central coast of British Columbia. I'm happy to be back here to talk to What on Earth again about our heat pump initiative and how we're changing the reality of how we're heating Hilfsdach homes in Bella Bella. We'll hear more from Gatwas in just a few minutes, but first. Leadership also means leading on the most existential issue of our time, which is climate change. And Mr. Ford, why don't you start off this five minute period with, do you think you've done enough to fight climate change? Well, we're, right now we're at 94% clean energy, but I'm never happy until we hit 100%. But what we're doing, we're investing billions of dollars into jobs, long-term jobs, long-term jobs that people will be able to have a, an income. We're changing lives in Windsor and in Oshawa and right across this province by attracting $14 billion of investment into electric vehicles. All three of you are about high ga- uh, you know, hiking up gas prices, gra- gas prices. Pa- people can barely fill their tanks right now. You're going to sit here you and defend big oil. The gas prices. You're going to defend big oil when we're in a prices. climate emergency? I'm making sure You're that we're getting rid of the tolls that you put on. A climate emergency. And, and we're going to make sure... We <laughs> Just a bit of the most recent leaders' debate in Toronto. Voters in Ontario go to the polls on June the 2nd. The province has an oversized influence on if, how, and when Canada cuts greenhouse gas emissions to limit global warming. To discuss where the parties stand and what voters want on climate change, we're joined by three people. Maham Kalim is the elections campaigner for the David Suzuki Foundation. Maimoun Buyan is the associate vice president of the McMaster University Student Union, and he's a climate activist. And Mark Winfield, a professor of environmental and urban change and co-chair of the Sustainable Energy Initiative at York University. Hi, everybody. Thanks for being here. Hello. Hi. Mark, let's start with you. Ontario is second only to Alberta, 
when it comes to emissions in Canada. And for listeners who are listening who don't get to cast a vote in Ontario, what's at stake in this election when it comes to climate change? I think a great deal is at stake in terms of where we go on climate. The reality at the moment is that Ontario is on precisely the wrong track. Um, We're set to see a massive increase in emissions, particularly from the electricity sector. Uh, But we also have a government which is running on a platform, among other things, of of, uh, expanding the highway network in the greater Toronto area. Uh, something which, absent any strategy for electrifying transportation, again, is, is almost guaranteed to increase emissions. Um, so this, this will have national implications. The federal government, among other things, is uh, committed to a emission-free electricity grid by 2035 as part of its overall strategy for meeting its Paris commitments. And it's difficult to imagine how that can possibly happen when Ontario is on track to a 600% increase in greenhouse gas emissions from the electricity sector. Maham, you work with immigrant communities and youth, and you're urging them to get out and vote as part of your role with the David Suzuki Foundation. Um, I'm so I'm wondering how important is climate change policy to the people that you're hearing from? It's definitely really important. You know, we see that Ontario receives almost 50% of all immigrants that come to Canada. And oftentimes they come from countries where they are seeing climate Uh, change affect their day-to-day lives. So it's something that's very personal to them in Ontario as well as to their families back home. Um, The real struggle for them is really to communicate with us sometimes their priorities or to feel comfortable in in terms of the access they have to get to the polls as well as the motivational barriers they have. So I do a lot of work around really being culturally relevant to them and building dialogues and trust with these communities so that we can get them to the polls and to be excited about voting the environment in mind. Now, I know, I know that you, you met uh, at least one uh, immigrant in, in the context of your work um, and that conversation stuck with you. Can you tell me about that? Definitely. I met uh, this lady called Bushra Akram when I was distributing our multilingual voter guides at a mosque during Eid. And the guide was in Urdu. And when I talked to her about you know the importance of voting with the environment in mind, she touched upon the importance of spirituality and faith and what that perspective allows her to connect with the climate. And she was really excited to see, you know, her own language being represented when we talk about the elections, because oftentimes these communities don't feel like their cultural uh, representation is, is done enough during, during election season. And she was excited. She said that she immigrated in the 1960s, and this was one of the first times that she really felt excited about some of the work that we were doing and to be able to see her language being showcased in that way. And did she tell you whether she's going to vote? Definitely. She she took a few of the guides with her home and then she uh, put it in her WhatsApp group with her family and networks as well. So it's very <laughs> exciting to see, um, you know, some of the grassroots efforts that we're doing have a personal uh, impact with, with these members. Now, I know you're not partisan, but did she did she hint to you of which way she was leaning? Yeah, I think the biggest part was that she was excited to do some more research. I know that for a lot of these communities, you know, we've been doing even radio interviews with uh, multilingual media. And a lot of the questions that we've been getting is, who do I vote for? They don't know, essentially. And so this is really an opportunity for us to give them the resources to learn and uh, really help guide them to the process of what resources are available out there and how to vote on election days or ways that you can vote before uh, June 2nd. All right. So that, there we were talking about people who are trying to make a decision. My moon, we know how you're voting. You're voting NDP. What sets them apart from the other parties in your view? 
I feel like the NDP has the most realistic chance of uh, uh, defeating Doug Ford. We need a strong provincial government that will have both a labor focus and an environmental focus. And those things go together with our ideas of a Green New Deal, of a just transition. And really, right now is the best time we can do it with the COVID-19 uh, pandemic um, still raging on. But at some point, we have to transition away from it. We need a just transition right now. Okay, well, well, my moon, why don't you tell me then what, what is in the Green New Democratic deals specifically that you like? Cost of living is going to be one of the most important aspects of this election. And I think that the Green New Democratic deal has some of the strongest ways to reduce the cost of living. We always talk about things like electrification of cars, but we ignore the fact that buying a green EV is basically out of reach for many, many Canadians. These are expensive vehicles and they're not really a affordable option. What is an affordable option is increasing intercity transit and increasing city-to-city uh, -city transit like the GO system. Other sort of things that the Green New Democratic Deal has been presenting um, by being one of the first, uh, I believe they were the first uh, provincial party to actually um, uh, present a deal, is also think, talking about things like protecting people's health by increasing our environmental supports and making a better and cleaner and a living space for Canadians. We reduce the amount of cost that they will have to do on spending for health care. Mark, I'm wondering what you think of what Maimoun just said and the, and the NDP's policy. I think all three opposition parties have put some very interesting things in their platforms and are thinking about the nature of the transitions that are happening in the province and, and where climate and energy fit into that. So you see quite a lot on um, electric vehicle manufacturing. You see a lot on building retrofits across the board. In terms of where the different parties sit, it's it's the differences on the opposition side are probably more at the margin. The Greens, you could argue, perhaps are somewhat bolder and more ambitious, particularly around carbon pricing. But there are, on all three opposition parties, you know, quite substantial platforms being presented around what they would do around climate and energy. You you talked about the other parties. Are, are the, any of the other opposition parties promising to make significant cuts in emissions? Yes, all three are. In fact, the Liberals, the Greens, 50% reduction by 2030, uh, the NDP to net zero by 2050. Uh, so there's very, very strong commitments on the table there. Now, in fairness, the government also has a commitment to 30% reduction by 2030 relative to 2005. Uh, the question on the government side is, is how would they actually get there? Right. And that was my next question for you was, was what about the Progressive Conservatives climate plan? Well, the problem is that, that I mean, there, there is a plan. It dates back to 2018. And we had the provincial auditor and environmental commissioner report on this. And their basic conclusion was that virtually nothing had been done to implement the plan the government did come up with in 2018. And that even if it was fully implemented, it would not actually be able to achieve the targets the government has set for itself. Okay. Um, there's been a lot of focus, Mark, on, on affordability, cost of living. Um, are any of the parties making climate policy? I mean, you say that the, the policies are there, but are they making it a priority in the campaign? I think that is that is shifting. Uh, I think the issue has been something of a sleeper, but I, I was very struck in the debate about how much uh, environment sort of forced itself into the conversation, whether it was supposed to be there or not. What we've not seen quite as much as, as might be done is to be making linkages to the affordability questions, which have so far kind of dominated the campaign. 
but there are very, very strong linkages to be made there. Not only is the increased reliance on natural gas going to be a problem from a climate perspective in the electricity sector, uh, but the price of gas is going up significantly. So this is also a very expensive track uh, relative to increased efforts on efficiency, renewables, potential relationship with Quebec. Um, the same issues could be raised around gas prices and the electrification of transportation as we head towards $2 a liter. Uh, um, lots of people on their own are starting to figure out that, that moving to electric vehicles might be a very good idea in that context. Uh, but at the moment, the government has no strategy for that side of things. It essentially is kind of free riding on the federal uh, subsidies and incentives that are in place already. Mohammed, I'm, I'm curious, since you are out there and talking to people, talking to voters, how, are, what are they telling you about what their issues are? Do they talk about climate change or is it more about the cost of living? I think cost of living and climate change do intersect in many ways. You know, climate is not an issue in isolation. And so uh, getting having conversations with them that shows them how interconnected the environment is and how you can think about the environment while also thinking about affordable housing or thinking about, you know, um, getting better employment for their children. These are all issues that are interconnected. So to vote with all of these issues in mind while also prioritizing climate action is, is the best way to go, is a conversation that we have been having. Maimoon, what are you and your peers talking about that you're not hearing from the party leaders? Right. Uh, one thing I'm not hearing from party leaders is like, um, well, uh, Andrew Haworth has uh, given a really expansive plan on uh, mental health. I don't hear even from her this idea of new climate anxiety, this sort of idea that, you know, or maybe she's spoken about, it, but I've not heard about it. It's not widely publicized. Uh, this idea that this climate disaster is really affecting our our my generation, uh, generation, uh, the Zoomers. We, we really are incredibly concerned. It, one of the questions that I, as an activist and as a student leader, whenever I talk to my constituents, whenever I talk to McMaster students, they're like, first of all, they feel like the climate change uh, issue is hopeless. And second of all, they really feel like it affects the rest of their lives. A lot of people say, I, why would I ever bring children onto this planet on a burning planet? And that's a very valid point. Why would you ever bring kids onto this planet when you know this planet is basically done for? Why would I ever invest in long-term education plans such as a PhD, even if that's my goal, assuming that, you know, in a few years, that it would be basically useless if, the, you know, world governments destabilize? Why am I supposed to really get involved right now if the problem is hopeless? This hopelessness is super prevalent, and it's both a mental health issue, but also a lack of policy issue from all governments. What, Mark, what, what are you hearing in that respect from the from the leaders or from the parties? Um, I I think I mean they they haven't really addressed it in quite such a direct way. Um, I mean, the focus, as we know, in this conversation so far, in terms of the party leaders has been very much on affordability issues. Uh, I mean, they've talked a bit, to the extent to which I've talked about youth, it's been more in the context of education and post-secondary education. So I'm not sure that's that's a, a, a dimension of the conversation that they've really picked up on that much and sort of moved into the forefront. I mean, the Greens have been to put an emphasis on the caring economy, but that's more focused on the formal healthcare sector as opposed to, to sort of the, the sort of wider generational dynamics that are going on. I mean, they're, they're implicit in the conversation, but I don't see them being addressed very directly. 
Okay, finally, I just want to ask all of you about voting as a form of climate action. Maham, you, you mentioned this already, but can you tell me what it means to you, voting? Yeah, and if I could also add on to what Maimon said about well-being and climate anxiety, it's definitely, you know, especially with immigrant communities, they rely on, you know, especially access to green spaces where they spend time with their families, but they haven't really connected the dots that this is a part of climate action. This is a part of what you're protecting. So really connecting those dots with them when we're having those conversations has been the most inspiring to me personally, because you can kind of see um, the light come on in their eyes. You can kind of see the hope and kind of you can see that they're they want to take initiative once they have that understanding. And so to answer a question on what does it mean to vote for me as well as the communities that I'm engaging with, you know, I'm a first generation Pakistani immigrant. So I've seen the effects of climate change in Pakistan with the brutal heats that happen. And to have those conversations with my parents when I'm here, as well as the communities that I've been interacting with has been really meaningful because we want to make sure that we're fighting for the places and the people that we love. And the best way to do that is to get ourselves to the polls on election day. Mark? Um, I think we need to think in, in terms of the larger picture. Um, given the, the starkness of the differences in the platforms around environment and climate change in particular, I think this may well be the most important election around those issues in the post-war era in Ontario. So people need to think about that. I think it's, it's crucially important that they engage and that they vote and that they look at what's in the platforms and think about the choices that are before them. And Maimoon, what about you? Can I add one more thing to Maham's comments about sort of climate anxiety? Please, go ahead. As a first-generation Bengali Canadian, uh, Bluffers Park was like the first thing that my parents would go to, a green space in Toronto. Um, it's really important that we connect these dots for even students, that it's just not this sort of like abstract idea of the world ending, but it's their immediate personal happiness and personal freedoms that are impacted by climate change. Now to answer your question, you as a voting as a form of climate action, it's incredibly important that students get out there to vote. We are the next generation, but we're building our world right now. We can't just wait for people who are not going to face the problems of climate change to make the decisions for us. And if we want us to have that role, we have to step up. We have to go out and vote. And we've done that. We see these major protest movements. We see students being activized. And the best way we get involved is by making sure the people representing us down in Toronto or down in Ottawa are people like us who really care about these issues, who really care about the future that they're living, not in an abstract, but because it affects them too. I'm looking forward to seeing how Ontarians vote in the election. And I I think our listeners will be paying attention too, but I thank all three of you for uh, joining together and talking about it. It's always a pleasure. Great, thank you. listening to What on Earth on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM and CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Laura Lynch. We do love hearing from you. So whether you're feeling the impact of climate change in your community or you're doing something to combat it, let us know. Earth at cbc.ca is our email address. And if you don't mind us giving you a call back, please include your phone number.
from all the emails we get that a lot of you are interested in heat pumps. What other network radio program gets to say that? (laughs) For many, it's a solution to cutting emissions at home and maybe saving a bit of change on power bills. There's one place that's moving fast to make the switch, and it's making a difference. The Heltzik First Nation on BC's central coast is even winning awards for its work. Last year, we talked to Gatwas Brown about the changeover just as it was starting, and now Gatwas is back with an update. Hello. Hello. When we last spoke to you, you had installed 130 heat pumps in the community in various homes. Where are you at now? So we have 486 homes in total here in Bella Bella on the central coast. The plan is to get to 95% of our homes having heat pumps. So by the end of summer, I do a little bit of math here, <laughs> we'll be at 274. Okay. And, and, out of 486. And uh, the end goal is what? I think I've read around 420 homes converted to heat pumps by the end of the year. That's the goal is to continue to reach to that 95% of our homes having heat pumps. So basically anybody in the community who would like one will have that option. And we also have the option of high efficiency wood stoves so that some people are choosing not to have the heat pumps is that extra little bit. Our original goal is 100%, but also that recognition doesn't work for everybody, but for the majority of the community. We've been hearing um, really great feedback from the community on how it's really changing. It's changing um, people's lives. So the way we're heating our homes. How is it changing their lives? Well, one of the biggest factors is um, on average that in Bella Bella, people would pay around $3,600 to heat their home per year. And after switching to a heat pump that that decrease the household energy spending by more than $1,500 a year, which is pretty significant in um, a community whose average income is lower than $30,000 a year. Right. So that what we call, what we've found, and we recently completed our our Hilstoch community energy plan. We're very proud of it. And it, it incorporates the heat pump action. And it's a $19 million plan that looks at bringing our community to net zero actually in the next 10 years. And so what we're trying to do is be an example for British Columbia on how a local government can really find solutions for themselves, staying connected to the global. But really what's unique about our plan is it's for the Hilfstauch, by the Hilfstauch, being implemented by our community And when we were in the creation of this plan, which we just won Community of the Year Award from Clean Energy BC for. Congratulations. Thank (laughs) you. I'm really proud of it. Because it's not just for Indigenous communities, but all communities. Right. And what we found is that on average, Bella Bella residents pay double the amount of, double the amount to heat their home than a British Columbian citizen. And that's what we call energy poverty. And it it goes back to the legacy of colonization and how our homes have been built in relationship with Canada to be subpar because we were seen as subhuman. And we're changing that. We're manifesting our clean energy future to be beautiful and bright. And we see no limitations on what this clean energy future will look like for the Hilfstoch nation. 
and how we will be a community off of diesel as we're part of the Indigenous Off Diesel Initiative. And that we're going to be a community who's looked to as an example to how to make this transition and how to be in alignment with nature. I'm wondering if you can um, give us an idea of what impact all of this is going to have on emissions from the community. Yeah, it is really exciting. One home switching over to heat pump eliminates five tons of greenhouse gas emissions um, annually. And so far, we've eliminated 770 tons of greenhouse gas emissions this year from our conversion from to 154 homes having heat pumps. And our goal is actually to become a carbon neutral community within these next 10 years. And that's including our 10 climate initiatives, which one of which is heat pumps. And the total cost of that will be $19.6 million dollars. And so far, we've secured $6.6 million. Okay. Now, that's a challenge, obviously, getting getting the rest of the money sourced. But I would just want to go through a few other challenges that, that you may be facing. What about as more and more people embrace the program, are there challenges with actually getting enough electricity to power them all? <sighs> the current issue is that we're a, a rising population and it is, it's a beautiful thing to see, but we currently aren't meeting the housing needs for our community and that we would need to introduce 200 new homes to re- just reach our current rate of housing that we need within our community. We're about to reach the max of our our hydro dam supply on our microgrid. And we also do have aging infrastructure. If you look on like the BC hydro energy grid, we're quite far away from any other infrastructure. So I don't see anytime soon that that energy will be coming or a new energy line will be coming to into our community and connecting us to the grid, but is like the potentially twinning our current energy line that comes from Ocean Falls within Hilfsuch territory. So we could double the amount of energy coming to our community. Uh, You just mentioned a few things about housing. I I just want to ask a little bit more about that, because last time we talked to you, um, one of the problems was that these homes that were built poorly, they're drafty, they have mold. Um, What are you doing in terms of uh, either renovating or you mentioned building some new homes? Is that the plan to just build new homes? Not the Hilsuch Climate Action Team, but through the Hilsuch Nation, we have a reconciliation process, which we call Heisjistu. And Heisjistu in the Hilsuch language means to turn things around and make it right again. And so what we came to was that we secured funding to create 40 new house lots that are prioritized for private ownership. So that gives the autonomy that we're not just creating box CMHC homes that are the same all across Canada, but what does that individual need? What does that family need? Currently, I live in the new subdivision I'm calling you from. The last time we talked, it was very interesting. I was calling you from my parents' home because we have that overcrowding in our village. And now I'm calling you from a locally built tiny home that I now own, and it's beautiful. Congratulations again. Thank you. (laughs) And that was part of our reconciliation efforts. And what we've learned is that we have really unique needs 
and we have a legacy of these older, unfit homes in this very wet and windy climate that are often unhealthy and energy insufficient. And what we want to move towards is really sealing our envelope of the homes we have and creating energy efficient homes. Now, I just wanted to, to we talked about the, the funding. You need 19 million, according to your plan. You've secured 6.6 million. How are you going to close that? Um, one of my team members, Isla Brown, she talked about how I was really proud of receiving Community of the Year Award. And she's like, this is the base. This is what all communities should be doing in this face of climate change. And that we do realize that there is a lot of, there's a lot of money that exists in this world. And we're able to tell people our story. And we're able to be an example for a shift in paradigm, shift in values going back to being in line with our Guilas and so there's quite a bit of opportunities that are are here right now. And so, yeah, just getting our story out there and actively co- working with partners and I guess finding those synergies on how to make our world a better place. Well, God bless. I, I have this feeling that <laughs> I'm going to need to check in with you again because uh, things keep happening for you and you keep moving forward. And I really appreciate you talking to me today about this. Yeah, I really appreciate you too. And I appreciate the space that you're creating for people to tell their stories. It's it's quite exciting because I guess for me, the opportunity to tell our story allows for that transition when people can really hear us in an honest way. And we're gonna make that shift and we're gonna, we're starting here in our community and telling our story is really encouraging other people to make their shifts too. All right, thank you, Gatwas. Kayasaha. That's it for us this week. Thanks to the CBC's Jacques Poitras, Caitlin Gowerluck, and Jillian Kubra. This week's show was produced by our intern, Callie McTavish, associate producer, Devin Nguyen, producers, Rachel Sanders and Molly Siegel. Matthias Wilson is our engineer. Our senior producer is Manisha Janakaram. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.